Hello and welcome to United's podcast and sermon archives. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at fergusunited.org or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and we hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. While they're making their way out, if I could get a little bit of help to pass out these handouts and pens. I have 10, so some people might have to shoot. If you have one more, Haley could use one up here. All right, we'll jump in. Uh, we'll do a quick review. So far, we've gone through five lessons. We covered a lot of ground in the last five weeks. Uh, it's funny, the more you do the overview or the review, you realize how much of a high-level overview of the Bible this is. But we have covered a lot of ground. We started out with an introduction to the Old Testament. We went through the account of creation. We studied the life of Adam and Eve, their children, Cain, Abel, and ultimately Seth. That led us up to approximately the time of Noah. We went through the life of Noah and we studied out the flood. Following that, we led up to the time of the Tower of Babel when God introduced languages to mankind. Uh, Coming out of there, we've seen the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob ultimately became known as Israel after an encounter with God. We have the 12 tribes of Israel, which are tribes that were born out of the 12 sons of the man named Israel. So there again, when we read the word Israel, we think a physical location on a map. But at this point in time, when it said the tribes of Israel, it was talking about a people group, the descendants of a man named Israel, a man who God had made a covenant with. One of those sons was Joseph. We studied his life and the trials, the highs and the lows that he went through. Ultimately, he came into great power in the land of Egypt and all of his family was reunited with him. They gladly marched into Egypt after a period of around 400 years. That didn't turn out to be so well. The Bible says there arose a Pharaoh who did not know about Joseph and the relationship that had existed. They put the Israelites into bondage and slavery. We studied the life of Moses, the exodus from Egypt. We looked at the 40 years that they spent wandering in the wilderness because they refused to put their faith in God and enter the promised land the first time that he 
opened the door and tried to allow them to do so. We've seen the death of Moses, the rising up of Joshua as a new leader, the entrance and the conquering of the promised land. After the time of Joshua, a single individual did not rise up right away as a leader, but there were judges that ruled over God's people. Ultimately, they did demand a king like all the nations around them. During the time of the judges and the kings, there were prophets that would speak God's word to His people. That's why we have all the books in the Old Testament that are are prophets. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. These are writings of prophets. Anybody remember the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? How much they spoke. That's all it is. It's just how long the book was. It's, it's kind of an irrelevant designation in Scripture. It's just talking about the length of the book. Um, last week we came to the conclusion of the Old Testament. And at the conclusion of the Old Testament, there was 400 years of silence. There's 400 years, and I kind of went through this last week, but when, it, when I say 400 years of silence, I'm speculating, and I want you to be very clear about that. I, I believe that God still dealt with individuals and, and tried to work with people, but there was no prophetic voice. There was no preacher. There was no prophet. There was no leader that God rose up and said, I'm going to speak through you to this mass group of people. For a time span of 400 years. So we're going to today start going over the New Testament. So uh, chart 1 in your notes, chart 25 on the screen. We get to the New Testament. We'll do an introduction of the New Testament. Matthew through Revelation is referred to as the New Testament. Because, excuse me. Because these books introduce a new covenant between God and man. So all along we've seen throughout history of mankind different approaches that God has taken to work with people. He worked through innocence. He worked through conscience. He worked through prophets and the law. He, he was always um, up in the ante. And every time that it changed, God became more involved. In the time of innocence, there wasn't much need for involvement. And then, God relied on the conscience of man. And then from that, God gave a law in which He gave a lot of specific do's and don'ts. He continually became more involved. When we get to the New Testament, there's a covenant that's introduced. And we're not going to get there today. We'll get there next week. But it is the most involved. God becomes physically involved in the redemption and the salvation of man. There are 27 books in the New Testament. How many were in the Old Testament? 30 something. Yep. 39. 39. And how can we remember that? Old Testament. Okay, Old Testament. Old has three. Testament has nine letters. So Old Testament, you just add them together. That's your Old Testament. Now New Testament is basically the same way, only we're going to multiply, not add. So 3 times 9, what is it? Oh, you guys are so smart. 27, that's how we can remember that. Not that it's, it's necessary, I don't think there's going to be a quiz before we can enter into heaven, but it's a neat, easy way to remember how many books are there. 
The new covenant that Jesus comes to institute does not dismantle the Old Testament. Okay, this is very important. Why did we spend the last five weeks talking about the Old Testament? A lot of people are misled in their thinking to believe that the New Testament puts a big circle with a slash through it on the Old Testament and it doesn't matter anymore. Rather, it's built upon its foundation. The New Testament is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. When we're reading through the New Testament without an understanding of the Old Testament, we miss a lot of things. In fact, there are many places where what we're reading in the, in the New Testament is a direct quote from the Old Testament. We're going to go through some of that today. But I want to show you what Jesus said about it in Matthew five seventeen and 18. He's speaking and He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come, or I'm sorry, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it all be fulfilled. So Jesus didn't show up on the scene and say, well, the Old Testament didn't work. We're going to throw, it out, throw that out the window. We're going to try something new. He says of His own mouth, He said, I'm not here to tear down what I've already put into place, I'm going to build upon that and it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be brought to completion. The New Testament includes four types of writing and we can see that broken down here. Um, Again, they have five. One of these separations is somewhat irrelevant. But we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are called the Gospels. And these are biographies of Jesus Christ. This talks about the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's just the the accounts of what he did. We have the book of Acts, which is the history of the church. The very first church. You know, what is church supposed to look like? What did God design? Well, he gave us a blueprint in the book of Acts. We have from Romans all the way through to Jude what would be called epistles. Can anybody tell me what an epistle is? Because we don't use that word. I think you mouthed it. Letter. Absolutely. It's just a letter. These are letters that were written. So when you read the book of Romans, what you're reading is a letter that was written by Paul to the church that was in Rome. When you're reading the book of Titus, you're reading a book that was written, or I'm sorry, a letter that was written by Paul to a man named Titus who was a leader in the early church. All of these things, that's what they represent. Um, Philippians, there was a church in Philippi. These are all written to churches. Uh, Down here you get into, and this is kind of why they call it general epistles. These are not necessarily written to specific churches, but for the church at large. Whether or not Paul wrote it, or, and he wrote it for Colossians, or someone else wrote it, like Peter, and he wrote it in general, they were letters to the church. And what the epistles do is they provide us a blueprint or practical guidance for what a Christian life should look like. Because we've got to understand, the church was brand new. You know, it talks about the day of Pentecost when all of a sudden there's no church, to now there's thousands of people that experience New Testament salvation 
and it, it, there is no like set of bylaws. There's no checklist for what to do and what not to do. And so there's very practical life information given in the epistles. The book of Revelation is um, just what it sounds like. Only a lot of times we go right to the prophetic nature of Revelation and we think that it's a revelation of what is to come. But it's very clear in and of itself when you begin to read the book of Revelation, it says a revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see a side of Jesus in the book of Revelation that we don't see in the Gospels. And we don't see it throughout the epistles. We see the lion rather than the lamb. And so there's something revealed to us, and then it does go on to tell us about what the end time is going to look like. I'm going to circle back to the Gospels before we go to the next chart. Because um, it could be asked, why, why do we have four books that are all biographies of Jesus? Couldn't we just have one? I mean, we could just have one book. In fact, some people get confused and they think, well, they don't, they don't perfectly line up. When in fact they do, it's just one writer focuses on certain attributes while another writer focuses on others. This is not whatever they wanted to write. How does the, script, how does the Scripture tell us Scripture was written? All Scripture was given by inspiration of God. So Matthew didn't say, you know what I think I want to do? I think I want to write a biography of Jesus. He was prompted by the Holy Ghost to write what he wrote. This is how you can break it down. Matthew wrote to reach a Jewish audience. He's often found quoting the Old Testament. So when you read the biography of Jesus that he prompted Matthew to write, Jesus is trying to communicate primarily to a Jewish people who were, who were still stuck in wrestling with the idea of trying to live according to the law and rejecting Jesus as Messiah. All the Pharisees that rejected Jesus while He was there. Those who still held to Judaism. And so that's why He takes all the time in the beginning. When you read the, the beginning of Matthew, it's this great big long lineage. Well, what's that all about? That was extremely important to the Jewish people. They needed to know that, that Jesus came from the line of David. They needed to know all of these things so that they could grasp it and understand it. Mark wrote primarily to reach a Gentile audience. And he often uses the actions of Jesus to validate the deity and the authority of Jesus. So he's writing to people that, that aren't caught up in Judaism. They don't know a lot about that. So he would focus in on the miracles that Jesus did to prove the point. Listen, if this guy can open the eyes of the blind, he truly is God and he should have some authority in your life. And so he's writing under the unction of the Holy Ghost specifically to reach a different group of people. Luke's writing points out the humanity of Jesus and often features his compassion for the weak the suffering, and the outcast. And so we see that Jesus fully is man. He's the, the Son of Man, as Scripture often says. And it points that out. While John focuses primarily on the deity of Jesus, and a lot of the emphasis he uses is on the claims that Jesus made to be God, 
rather than just the things that he did. So that's why you have four different gospel accounts that seem to be a little bit different. They may write about the same story while one leaves out some details and another adds in details. A really cool thing to do just in passing, you can look it up online. There's a lot of resources out there. But you can read the accounts in all four Gospels at the same time and you'd be amazed how you, you see the bigger picture because you're seeing what, what from every perspective all the details that actually went on in every account. And that, that's really neat to do. Alright, chart two. There was a scripture that I told you to remember last week and I made it really easy and I put it back in your notes this week. One of the things that we read in the book of Malachi last week, just before the conclusion of the Old Testament, right before we go into this 400-year span of silence, we read in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says there's going to be a forerunner, a messenger that comes on the scene, preparing the way and following after him, Messiah is going to come. The one that you've been waiting on. He's going to show up. He's going to walk into the temple. We read in Matthew, so beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, This is John the Baptist speaking. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The messenger that was prophesied in the book of Malachi was John the Baptist. When we start reading about John the Baptist, he wasn't just some random guy who had a message and he was... He was the one who broke the sound of silence in a 400-year span and began to preach to people. And we're going to get into his message a little bit, but he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Get ready. He was paving the way. He was the forerunner and the messenger. Now, why is he called John the Baptist? That wasn't his middle and last name. That was a description of John the Baptist. So why do you think he was called John the Baptist? Because he baptized people. That's what he was known for. John the Baptist baptized people. He baptized them, not like we are familiar with now, not in the name of Jesus for the remission of their sins, but of his own admission in the Scripture that we just read. He said, I'm baptizing you unto repentance. Jesus' name baptism like we know it now was not available. The blood of Jesus had not yet been shed. He had never been buried. There was no gospel to relate to. But John was baptizing people unto repentance. Now John was not eloquent. He wasn't crafty in the message that he was there to present. Um, He he didn't put a bunch of flowery words together. In fact, he was a pretty crude guy. The Bible says he dwelled on the outskirts of town. He lived out in the desert. He ate locusts. And he dressed himself in in camel fur. That sounds like a cool guy. He's 
He'd be the equivalent of the individual walking across the country nowadays. Looks like he's homeless carrying the cross. He's the weirdo that's out in the middle of the desert and and he's preaching this message that the Messiah was coming. No one had heard from a prophet in a really long time. And yet there was something in these people that drove them out of the city. John didn't come and, and beg them and bang on their door and ask them to listen. There was something inside of these people that caused them to leave the city, leave where they called home, and to go out into the wilderness in order to hear the message of this crazy man who was eating locusts and baptizing people. In some cases, he even turned those away who he could see were insincere. The Pharisees and the rulers, they hear about all the people are going out to be baptized, and so they they come walking out, John, we want you to baptize us as well. And John says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You can go go back and live your life and show some, some work that is the equivalent of repentance, Show some real change. Show, show some real sincerity. And then come back and we'll talk about your baptism. So again, he wasn't, you know, Mr. Charismatic drawing the large crowds. He was preaching a pretty strong message. Um, Matthew 3 and 2, what did he preach? And saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. It wasn't live for God and you're going to be blessed. Live for God and you're going to be rich. Live for God and everything's going to work out. He just said you need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It was the voice of John that would pronounce Jesus as the Lamb of God at the outset of His ministry. You could read that in John 1.29. That's right when Jesus comes to be baptized of John. We're going to go to the next chart. The events surrounding... The birth of Jesus, if you wanted to read that fully, full account, you could read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Jesus was born of a virgin. That's not folklore. That's not a, a really good ruse that Joseph and Mary came up with to stay out of trouble. The, the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary and Joseph had not yet come together. As the Bible says, they did not know one another. Um, That in and of itself is miraculous, but it also spoke volumes again to the Jewish people who God had primarily worked with through all these years. This is where understanding and having a grasp on the Old Testament becomes so relevant. Because Isaiah 7 and 14 was a prophecy about the Messiah that they were waiting on. It was written hundreds of years earlier, and it says this, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. So this wasn't like, wow, that's really cool. It wasn't to validate that He was God. It was to to fulfill prophecy that had already been spoken about His birth. So when the rumors started to spread around about a virgin birth, it wasn't just a cool story. All of these people immediately drew this scripture, this prophecy to mind. They were taught these things from the time they were a child. Just in way of passing, really cool about that passage, that word Emmanuel is interpreted God with us. So there's going to be a virgin who bears a son, and his name is is literally going to mean God God with us. 
We would also find in Luke chapter 2 a detail that Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. Okay, cool deal, nice detail. Why is that there? Why is that important? Again, it goes back to the Old Testament and the prophecy in Micah 5 and 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So there's another prophecy about the Messiah that's going to come, and it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So we see another fulfillment of Scripture. A prophecy. Let's go to chart 4. And if you want to reference the... I think it's the fourth page in your handout. There is... I, I put this in there. We're not going to have time to go through this entire thing. Clearly, we'd be here till next week. But it is very, very interesting. There are many prophecies found in the Old Testament, a lot like the two that we just looked at, that point to the life of Jesus. Uh, in that, that page there, you see this entire chart. You can go through. The detail of these prophecies are undeniable. I mean, and the way that you would read this is there's, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament. This is what the prophecy is saying. And, and when you read this New Testament Scripture, it is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. That's a lot of prophecies. These things were written long before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth. And they don't all have to do with, with Jesus. So I, I took note of a couple of them. Um, he's going to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. So if I want to play the role of the skeptic today, I can say, well, Jesus knew that. He knew that Old Testament Scripture, and so He could fabricate that. He could go out, and He could get Himself a donkey, and He could enter into the city and say, see, the Scripture said, the prophecy says that the Messiah is going to come on a donkey, and I just came on a donkey. Um, but it also says, there's also prophecy up there that says He's going to be betrayed by a friend. I suppose one could fabricate that, but it's an awfully weird thing to fabricate and make up. It's specific enough to say that this betrayal is going to be for 30 pieces of silver, which is exactly what Judas was paid for the information he gave on Jesus. It then goes on to prophesy that this money, this blood money, was going to be thrown down in the house of God. Now, Jesus can't fabricate this one because he's already, he's already in custody. And what does Judas do when he realizes the full weight and the consequence of, of what he does? He goes back to the temple and he throws the 30 pieces of silver down at their feet. That's detail that can't be denied. There's prophecy included in this list that says no bones are going to be broken. Now, when you were put to death on a Roman cross, on a crucifix there were supposed to be bones that were broken. Because once the, the torment and the torture was coming to a conclusion, a soldier would come by and break the shin bones of the individual hanging on the cross so that they could no longer lift themselves up and gasp for air, and it, it would conclude the process quicker. But Jesus, before they ever broke His legs, gave up the ghost, the Scripture says. He died, 
and there was no need. So throughout all of the torture that he went through, the Scripture prophesies that it's going to be this way, and there's no bones that are broken in the body of Jesus. It even tells us that he's going to be laid in the tomb of a rich man. And here's Joseph who comes after it's all said and done and begs of Pilate to give him the body of Jesus so that he could take his body and bury it in his own tomb. So, that, I mean, that's just a few. I would really encourage you to take the time in your devotion, your Bible reading, to go through some of these because time and time again you see Old Testament prophecy written by people who would never meet the Messiah hundreds of years earlier, and yet it comes to pass in the life of Jesus. Going to the next chart, Jesus was not just a prophet or a man of God. Okay, this is important to know. He was not just a prophet or a man of God. Jesus was God. Can't be any more plain or emphatic about that. Jesus was God. Again, on the very last page, if you take a look at that, I uh, don't think I'll cover any of your fill-in-the-blanks. You, you could take a few minutes to look at that. It provides a great visual connection between the claims that were attributed to Jehovah of the Old Testament and then were also attributed to Jesus who walked the earth in the New Testament. So as you follow this chart, the way it works, and I'll, I'll walk through one of them in a moment. I threw it in my notes, but um, I think this is the one I'm going to use. So... We, we have essentials around one God. It's hard to read up here, but these are Old Testament Scriptures. These are testam- Old Testament Scriptures that apply to Jehovah. They're speaking about the, the God who's spoken of in the Old Testament. And they declare that He is both the first and the last. And if you follow that straight through, these are New Testament Scriptures that say the same thing about Jesus. And all of these things that are said about God are also said about Jesus. And I'll say more clearly, are said about Jehovah, are said about Jesus. And it validates and proves that Jesus was God. Just for example, the Old Testament says in Isaiah 41 and verse 4, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, The first and the last, I am He. Then we go to Revelation 1 and 17, and we see this being in uh, context of Jesus. You can read the Scriptures around it to validate that. For now, you'll have to trust me. It says, And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead. And He laid His right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Time and time again, there's so many up there. And it just keeps coming back to the understanding of the Old Testament. I believe it's... I'm going to get messed up here. I'm out of my notes. I think it's John chapter 8 where Jesus stands before a group of the Pharisees that are all getting all muckety-muck and saying, well, Abraham is our father. And he looks at him and he says, well, before Abraham was, I am. And that's a confusing passage of Scripture if all I'm reading is the New Testament because that's not that good of a zinger. You know, Jesus, you probably could have done better. But it was enough to where when He said that, these people got so mad that they started picking up rocks and they were going to stone Him to death. 
It's like, I mean, it, it wasn't that offensive. But it was when you understand the Old Testament because when Moses stood before the burning bush and he said to Jehovah, who am I going to say sent me to, to Pharaoh? God speaks back from the burning bush and He says, you tell them I am hath sent you. So when Jesus stands there and He looks the Pharisees in the eyes and, he, and they're all talking about how proud they are that they are descendants of Abraham and He says, before Abraham was... I am. They understood fully that he was claiming with, without any dispute to be God. And to them that was blasphemy and they would have stoned him and killed him had they had the full opportunity. We'll go to the next chart, chart number six. We're given little detail about the life of Jesus before his public ministry. On the contrary, once he begins his public ministry, we're given an open view into his life. He was most likely around the age of 30 years old. His public ministry, it is believed, consisted from the ages of 30 to 33, which is incredible in and of itself. All the stories, all the miracles, all the things that we read about, the parables, the teaching, Everything that we read in the Gospels pertaining to the ministry of Jesus took place in three years. That was a, a packed three years. of some incredible things that took place. We first see His baptism in Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. And it's a pretty incredible baptism because John baptizes Jesus reluctantly at first because he's like, why would I baptize you? I, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness, all prophecy. So he does. John sees a dove descending from the heaven, lighting upon Jesus, which is confirmation to him that that was the Messiah that he was supposed to pave the way for. There is an audible voice that comes out of the sky, out of the heavens, validating the fact that Jesus was the Messiah to the multitude that was there. From this point... Jesus is led into the wilderness and tempted of the devil. See, even Jesus had to deal with the devil. That's why the Scripture says that we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as are we. It's saying that, that in that day, there was the high priest, there was the Pharisees who were, were presenting themselves as so far above the people. It, it was just ridiculous. And so Jesus comes not as a king, not as somebody with a palace and a throne. He comes as a common man, even below a common man, as a servant. And he endured all the challenges of life that these people would have gone through, all the challenges of life that you and I would have gone through. Uh, the first challenge that he faces in the wilderness of Satan, we have to understand that he had been fasting for 40 days. That's a long time. He was hungry. It's safe to say Jesus was hungry after 40 days of not eating. He was, he was past hangry. I don't even know if there's a word for it. 40 days is a long time. And in comes Satan, and he says, hey, I've got an idea. You've got power to do the miraculous. He says, there's, there's stones here. Why don't you just turn these stones into bread and eat them? And he's, he's tempting Jesus to manipulate and uses power for self-gain. And he's tempting the flesh of Jesus 
to trust in the, the physical food rather than to rely on the Spirit to get him through. And he overcomes this temptation. And so the next thing that Satan tries to tempt Jesus with is his ego. See, even Jesus had to put his ego in check. He takes him up to the top of a, the temple, to the pinnacle, and he says, you know what the Scripture says? We get really confused when the devil starts talking Scripture, but he's pretty good at it. He knows the Word of God. And he says to Jesus, he says, you know, the, the, the Scripture says that you won't even dash your foot upon a stone. So you could cast yourself off of this temple and angels would appear out of heaven and catch you before you hit the ground. And everybody that sees that, everybody around is going to know at that point that you are God. Jesus overcomes this temptation and He responds again with the Word of God in proper context. The last temptation that Satan used against Jesus was a shortcut to all that he really desired. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus come to earth? That's important for us to think about. Why do you think he came? To save us. Okay? Save us to build a kingdom? I'm fishing for something specific here. There's something that God has been trying to restore all through our study. It was lost in the garden. Relationship. So yes, we had to be saved. He wanted to <laughs> He wanted to establish a, a kingdom of people. He was trying to reconnect and reestablish relationships. The unbroken relationship that existed between him and Adam and Eve when he first created mankind. And so Satan takes him up to a high place and shows him all the nations of the world. And he starts to promise things that he can never deliver because they're not within his power. But it probably sounded really good at the moment. And he says to Jesus, I'll tell you what, if you'll just, if you'll just fall down and worship me one time, I'll give you all the nations of the world. Well, they weren't his to give. Right? He had no power. He had no authority to do that. Number one, because God was the creator. Number two, because God gave man free will. Satan can't give you to anyone. God has placed within you free will. But it probably sounded really good. Like, you know what? To the flesh of Jesus. This is where we have to realize he was fully man. He, he, he dealt with the same temptations as we do. And what Satan was offering him was, you can bypass the suffering. You can bypass the nails. You can bypass the crown of thorns. You don't have to bleed and die. All you've got to do is worship me for a minute. Just, just give me what I want for just a minute. And I promise you, I'll make all your dreams come true. Liar. Liar. Jesus overcomes this again with the Word of God. He responded to each temptation with Scripture in proper context. And the Bible says after this third time that Satan left him for a season. I, I wish that we could overcome Satan one time and he would learn his lesson and then just leave us alone forever. But even Jesus continued to deal with temptation throughout the, the life that he lived on this earth. It doesn't say... Satan left him, and for the next three years, he ministered untempted. It says Satan left for a season, 
And that's how it works in your life and mine. We, we can overcome the enemy. We can be victorious in battles. But there's going to come a time when he comes poking his head back into our life trying to convince us of something different. Some new approach. Some new scheme. The ministry of Jesus is filled with the miraculous. We're going to walk through these things that are depicted in picture here. Uh, Matthew 9, 27-30, Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. And when Jesus departed thence, two men followed Him crying, saying, Thou Son of David, have mercy on us. And when He saw... I'm sorry, can't quite read today. And when He was come into the house, the blind men came to Him. And Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. John 5, 5-8 Jesus heals the lame. And that doesn't mean that they weren't cool. They, they didn't have the ability to walk. They were lame. And a certain man was there which had an affirmity thirty and eight years. Now just really quickly, context. When it says there, he was at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. And there would be an angel that would come and stir the waters of the Pool of Bethesda and there were sick people and people with all kinds of diseases gathered around that. And the first individual that would step in after that stirring would be healed. This man has had his condition for 38 years. And he's still there. I don't know if he's been there for 38 years, but he's dealt with this for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? That's, that seems like a foolish question. Do, do you want to be healed? I just like laying around here in the dirt. I'm trying not to be too preachy, but sometimes we just accept things in our life. It's just been this way for so long. This is how I am. I just have to deal with it. This is just part of me. This is part of my identity. And Jesus asked the question, will you? Will you be made whole? So the guy had to answer the question. The impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But when I am coming, another steppeth down before me. He said, I'm trying. I'm doing, I'm doing my part. I'm doing everything I can, but I, I can't walk. He says, when I'm coming. And so I just I have the mental picture. This guy's legs are lame. He's still trying to make an effort. What's he, what's he rolling or dragging himself toward the water? He's, he's doing the best he can. But somebody always gets there first. And, and he, he relays this to Jesus. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And the man's healed just like that. Jesus healed the lame. Matthew 8, 2-3 Jesus cleansed the lepers. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. 
And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The untouchable, the outcast, the, the disgusting leper that nobody wanted anything to do with. We, we see it communicated in the terminology of this man. Lord, if you will, how many people had rejected this man before? To where when he comes to Jesus, his, his qualifying statement is, look, if you're even willing, if you're even, and Jesus says, I'm willing, and he, and he touches this man and heals him. Mark 7, 32-35, Jesus opens deaf ears and corrects speech ailments. And they bring unto Him one that was deaf and had an impediment in His speech. And they beseech Him to put His hand upon Him. And He took Him aside from the multitude and put His fingers in His ears. And He spit and touched His tongue that's gross. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephratha, you can say it however you want to. It tells us what it means. That is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. God healed this man. One more, John eleven forty three and 44. Jesus raises the dead. He raises the dead. And when He had thus spoken, He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And His face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto, him, unto them, Loose him and let him go. Jesus raised the dead. All of these miracles that, that the Lord did, we're going to move forward in His ministry in next week's lesson, but I want to bring us to a point of application today before we close. This lesson exposes two mighty voices in the beginning of the New Testament. That of John the Baptist and that of Jesus Himself. Both offered life-altering messages. But in exchange... In any exchange, there is more than one party. I could try my best to give something to someone, but unless they're willing to take it or receive it, my efforts are going to be in vain. So there, there is an exchange and there's a response. Not everyone accepted the messages of John. And not everyone accepted the messages of Jesus. Despite all the miracles, all the incredible things, that, and we just read a few of them, over and over and over again, God does amazing things for people. And there were still folks who said, nah, I'm not going to do it. They weren't light offers. The messages of John and Jesus required uncomfortable obedience. I'll give a few examples, but we really just read one. You want to be healed? Okay, I'm going to spit on your tongue. You know, I... I'm not going to mock. Man could have said, I, I kind of like the way I talk. <laughs> That's gross. That's uncomfortable obedience. I, I want to be healed, but Jesus, we need to talk about your methods. Jesus said, look, I'll heal you. 
this is how I'm going to do it. What existed in the lives of those who did respond properly to both the words of John and the words of Jesus? That's an important thing for us to, to figure out. What was it that caused these people to respond properly? There was faith. But in many cases, people had faith. They believed he would, but they wouldn't pony up. They wouldn't accept what he was asking of them. I would present to us, obedience is a great answer. I would present to us that there was a level of hunger that existed in their life. They were hungry. They needed, they needed something from God. They were hungry enough to obey and their obedience sealed the deal of exchange. We read about a man with a withered hand. Were, that, was a, uh, that was a sign of shame. Magda, we were talking about this the other night, Thursday night. But there's a, there's a guy with a withered hand, and Jesus calls him out in front of everybody. And what's he say? Stretch forth your hand. Show everybody your problems. He could have said no thank you and left. But because he was willing to uncomfortably obey, he immediately received healing. We read about a woman who had to crawl through a mass of people in shame that she had experienced for years just to touch the, the hem, there's just the, the coattail of Jesus. And when she did that, healing flowed. And Jesus stopped everything. He said, virtue just left for me. Who, who touched me? Nobody else really got it. Everybody else was oblivious. The, the disciples are like, Jesus, there, there's a lot of people around. And Jesus said, no, there was something different. Somebody extended themselves. And, and, and as a result, the supernatural just took place. This woman exposes herself. Can you imagine being there in the crowd when Jesus is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he says, what I need you to do is roll the stone away from the tomb. One person actually spoke up. Lord, it's been a few days. He, uh, he smells by now. That's not natural. We, we, we probably shouldn't do that. But they uncomfortably obeyed. They were so hungry for the miracle that Jesus could offer, that they were willing to do something that did not make sense to them. And as a result, a dead man bounced out of the tomb, still bound in his grave clothes. We read about a group of friends in the Scripture who were so hungry to see their, their friend healed that when the building was full, they climbed on the roof and tore it apart so they could lower him down in, into the presence of Jesus. That's, that's pretty desperate. We read about the blind men who are willing to cry out above the crowd when everybody else is telling them to shut up. Just be quiet. Don't bother Jesus. That's not the way we do things. You're, you're causing a scene. Knock it off. No, I'm hungry. i I got to have something from God. We read about the quaint healing of the blind, but you know there's another place where a blind man comes to Jesus and Jesus spits in the dirt. I don't know what was it with him and spit. He spits in the dirt and he makes mud 
And then he rubs the mud in the man's eyes. And then he says, before you're healed, you've got to go and find a certain fountain. And you've got to wash your face in that fountain. And that's when your healing is going to be complete. If there was ever a time and opportunity to get offended with Jesus, it was walking away with, with spit mud in your face and you still haven't received what it is that you came for. But he was so hungry that he was willing to endure what was uncomfortable and remain obedient. And he found his way to the fountain and he washed and he received something supernatural from God. I would present to us as the, the Christian of 2020. Could it be that we see less of the miraculous because we operate with a lower level of hunger? Could we be so satisfied with life as it is and, and just the way things are that we've lost the edge of desperation? When we desire the things of God more than anything, we're willing to delete other things from our life to attain them. When we seek the blessings of the Lord, are there other pleasures that we're not willing to remove from our lives in order to receive them? God, I want your blessing, but I'm not going to do what you're asking. I just, I just wonder, where, where is the hunger that existed in Scripture? Because I see the power. God hasn't changed. He's just as strong as He's always been. We read about accounts that take place overseas in countries that aren't as blessed as ours, where they don't have the, the doctors they can run to every time they have a sniffle and they don't have the economy that they can just go out and work a little harder and make a little more money. And God's still doing miracles there. Could it be that, that maybe we're just, we're just not as hungry? We're seeking God to help us through perilous times and I think maybe God's more concerned about prayerless times. We want, we want all the answers. But oh, oh God, are we taking time to, to really talk? Are we hungry? Are we seeking after You? Are we to a place where we say, God, I'll do whatever You ask of me, whenever You ask of me, as often as You ask it of me, because I need You in my life more than anything else. You see, hunger can be created. If you're hearing what I'm saying today and... and just an honest assessment, you say, you know what, I'm, I'm really not that hungry. I'm not that hungry for the, for the supernatural. I, I really don't have anything that I, I need. There's no life or death situations in my life right now. I, maybe I am missing a little bit of hunger. Hunger can be created. It's a biblical concept we don't talk about too often. It's fasting. There's several ways that we can fast. We can push away the plate like Jesus did when He was being led into the wilderness. We can fast from food. We can weaken the flesh and partner that pushing away of food and the, and the plate with prayer and Bible reading and worship so that as the flesh is being subdued, the, the spirit is being strengthened. And that will create hunger in our life. Maybe... I got home last night. I'd been out of town and Sharice had made dinner. She grilled some good chicken. I didn't eat any of it because I had already eaten. I was already full. Maybe we're just full with hobbies and entertainment 
and anything else that brings me a reason to feel like I need less of God in life. And maybe what I ought to do is fast some of those things and begin to cut them out so that I don't feel so content with life as it is. I'll share three points and three scriptures and I'm going to come to a close very quickly and give us an opportunity to pray. Number one, the reason I'm closing this way and talking about application like I am is because God responds to hunger. He responds to hunger. Psalms 107 and verse 9, For He satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. The Scripture gives us a promise that God will satisfy the soul that longs after Him and He will fill the hungry soul. Point number two, we know God is willing based on what I just said. But you and I respond differently when we approach God from a place of hunger. We just do. It's, it, I'm going to read Scripture. Psalms 27 and verse 7. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. He says, when you're full, you hate even, even a honeycomb. Something that's sweet and wonderful. But all oh, when you get hungry, even the bitter things are sweet. When I'm hungry, God, I'll, I'll take whatever it is you want to give. Whatever message, what, whatever calling, whatever, uh, whatever commitment, what, whatever it is that you want from me, I, I just want you. I'm hungry. And so my response is different. And lastly, another promise from God in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why are they blessed? Because the Scripture says, For they shall be filled. So as we close and we take time to pray today, my question to you is, are you hungry? Are you hungry? Talk to God about it a little bit today. Begin to, begin to seek Him. Develop a hunger for the Lord, for the things of God. For more than what we've seen, I'm grateful for the presence of God that I experience on a regular basis, but I, I'll be the first to admit, there are so, there's so much to the Lord. We haven't even scratched the surface of His power or His majesty or His provision. The need that we have in our life, He's so willing to meet, but, but are we approaching Him in hunger? How many blind men did He walk past that refused to cry out? Are you hungry? Let's talk to God. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you'd like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online to fergusunited.org. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you will be automatically notified of our new episodes. Thank you very much, and we hope you have a great week. God bless you.